Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 17. This week, we'll be talking through 1 Kings 19, verses 19 through 2 Kings chapter 17. Now, as we begin this week, just a strong word of caution is that the following the storyline is going to get a little bit complicated this week. That's why I gave you that chart in the previous week's email, and I will include it again in this week's email because there are many names, and the text will go back and forth between the kings in the north to the kings in the south. And also some of those kings have the same names, so that makes it even more complicated. So take heart, play the podcast through multiple times if you need to, And this podcast will likely be the longest one to date. And as always, ask questions. If you need clarification on something or are curious about something, ask questions and I will respond to them as soon as I can. Now, as we last left off, we left off with the prophet Elijah in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. The last half of chapter 19 talks about the call of Elijah's successor named Elisha. So Elijah takes Elisha under his wings as an apprentice of sorts. So now we're taken back to King Ahab. Remember, as we spoke last week at this time, King Asa is the good king that is ruling in the south presently, and six other northern kingdoms come to power in the north while Asa is ruling in the south. And the last of those northern kings is Ahab. I hope you were able to take a look at that chart of the kings of Judah and Israel. Keep it close to you. It will give you a better visual understanding of how the storyline flows. Now, in chapter 20, King Ben-Hadad of Aram gets together an alliance of kings to go up against the city of Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom. And when Ahab gets official word of the demands from this king, he surrenders to some of the king's demands. And because Ahab doesn't surrender to all the demands, the king of Aram gets this army together and an alliance together, and they prepare to attack Israel. And right as the attack is imminent, a prophet comes to Ahab and tells him that the Lord will hand over the enemy to him. Ahab listens and follows the prophet's instructions, and the enemy is repelled for a period of time. The next year, around that same time, the enemy comes back, and this time Ahab does not fully obey the Lord's command. An unnamed prophet, by means of a parable, rebukes Ahab and told him, um, told him that he would have to pay for his life. By the way, if you get a chance... I think it's curious, study the lives of Saul and Ahab and take note of the many parallels of incomplete obedience that the two share. Now, this is one verse in chapter 20 that I want you to see. It's verse 23. After being defeated the first time by Israel, the enemy says, the reason that Israel won was because their God was the God of the hills. But we, the enemy, can beat them in the valleys. But if you go down to verse 28, a prophet goes to Ahab and tells him that the enemy said, Quote, the Lord is a God of the hills and not of the valleys, so I will defeat this vast army for you. Then you will know that I am the God of the hills and the valleys. Now, I don't know if that's where that line from that familiar song came, Hills and Valleys, sung by Tarn Wells, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's good to know that our God is a God of the hills and of the valleys. Then as you move down into chapter 21, Elijah encounters Ahab once again. This time it's the final straw. Ahab had coveted a piece of lush property that his neighbor owned, but his neighbor, named Naboth, was unwilling to part with it. So Jezebel, Ahab's wife, fabricated charges against Naboth that resulted in Naboth's stoning. Ahab and his queen would die a miserable death, we're told. However, because of his repentance, his dynasty would not end with him, but a later descendant. 
Now, you go into chapter 22, and we go back to the south. King Asa in the south has finished his reign, and his son Jehoshaphat takes over as king in the south. For three years, there had been peace between Israel and Aram, but Ahab was unhappy that certain parts of the northern kingdom were still under the control of Aram. So he enlisted the help of Jehoshaphat, who had married Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. However, Jehoshaphat, not trusting Ahab or his prophets, a good bet, I'm sure, wanted to make sure that this was the Lord's will. And there was a prophet named Micaiah who had been imprisoned because his messages were not popular with Ahab, namely because they were messages of truth. Micaiah tells Ahab and Jehoshaphat that Ahab's prophets were liars, and the outcome of this battle would be disastrous. But the two kings go into battle anyway, and Ahab disguises himself as just a regular person, while Jehoshaphat wears his royal robes. But in the end, a random arrow finds Ahab and eventually leads to his death, a death that was predicted by the Lord. Jehoshaphat continues to reign as king of the south. He reigns for a total of 25 years, ridding the land of additional pagan practices, but not, but not all of them. The text says that he followed in the footsteps of his father Asa, being considered a good king. Now we'll come back to Jehoshaphat, but at the end of chapter 22... Ahaziah succeeds his father Ahab as king in the north, and he also follows follows in his father's evil ways. So that officially ends 1 Kings, and we travel into 2 Kings, and we continue the story of Ahaziah right into 2 Kings. One day we're told the king suffers a fatal accident, and instead of calling on the Lord for help, he sends a delegation to Ekron, uh, to plead his case before a Philistine god. And along the way, this delegation encounters Elijah, who told them in so many words that the king would not recover from his injuries. Upset about the news from the first delegation, the king sends out another one. The second delegation was consumed with fire for attempting to challenge Elijah's prophecy. And then, yes, a third delegation was sent out, but this time the leader of the third delegation humbly begs for his life and the life of his men. And so we're told an angel of the Lord appears to Elijah and tells him it's safe to go with this third group, and they go back to the king, and Elijah delivers the message personally to Ahaziah that he will not recover. The king rules for another two years. He does not have a successor, and so his brother Joram becomes king in the north, while Jehoshaphat is still reigning as king in the south. As we move down to chapter 2 in 2 Kings, the Lord decided that Elijah, like Enoch before him in Genesis 5.24, should not die but be translated into heaven. This visible removal of Elijah from earth to heaven came in the form of a whirlwind that manifested itself to onlookers as a fiery chariot. When Elisha learned that Elijah is getting ready to depart this life, he insisted on following him from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho, all the places associated with Elijah and his movements. Arriving at the Jordan River, Elijah parted the waters, much like Joshua did. He told his apprentice to ask one blessing from him before he was taken out of this world. Elisha asked for a double portion. The double portion was the portion of the firstborn son, twice as much as any other son. The firstborn son from a family always received a double portion of the father's inheritance. So in other words, what Elisha was asking for is Elisha would be Elijah's true successor in the prophetic ministry, almost as if it's saying his firstborn son. 
Then it happens in verse 11, notice carefully that it was not the fiery chariot that took Elijah up into heaven. It was the whirlwind that took him to heaven. Nearly 900 years later, Elijah's going to appear again. This time it's with Moses atop a high mountain in the presence of Jesus and the three disciples in Matthew chapter 17. We call that the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses had led the people out of Egypt. We call it the exodus from Egypt. Elijah had an exodus to heaven, and now Jesus was speaking with these two about his upcoming exodus there in Matthew chapter 17. Now, we will have fun discussing this, but we won't get that to that passage in Matthew until around October. So I guess we'll have to wait until then. Now, the remainder of chapter 2 of 2 Kings is about the evidence of Elisha's success. The same spirit that empowered Elijah now empowers Elisha. The two miracles in the second half of this chapter set the tone of Elisha's ministry as a whole. He would be a source of blessing to the needy, but he would also be a source of judgment to those who did not respect God. Chapters 3 through 8 highlight a lot of the events of the ministry of Elisha. Now in chapter 3, we last left the kingdom of the north with Joram in charge. Remember that Jehoshaphat is still king in the south, and sometime during Joram's 12-year rule, the nation of Moab, which was a vassal state, of Israel, rebelled on the leadership of a man named Misha. And the reason for the rebellion was that King Ahab had died, so I guess he had some sort of agreement with Ahab, but not with this new leadership. So Joram goes to Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, and these three kings head to Moab to deal with this new threat. These three kings and their armies soon run out of water, but Elisha was summoned to help them. And through him, God provided for his people. God gave the northern kingdom victory over Moab because they allied themselves with the southern kingdom and their good king or godly king, King Jehoshaphat, who humbled himself under God. Now, one thing you'll begin to appreciate about Elisha's ministry is that it was a ministry mainly directed toward the little people or the less fortunate ones. Look at what he does in chapter 4. God uses him to provide a miraculous supply of oil for a prophet's widow. Then God uses him to provide a male child for a barren couple. And later he raised to back, back to life that same child who died of a sunstroke. Back amongst his own group of prophets, he delivered the community from a bad batch of stew that could have harmed them. And at the close of chapter 4, like Jesus, he was able to multiply 20 small loaves of bread until it was enough for 100 people. Clearly, his earlier prayer for a double portion of Elijah's spirit was answered. Now, as you move into chapter 5, what's interesting here is that this demonstrates to us very clearly that God loves the people from all nations and not just from Israel only. Naaman, in this chapter, is a Aramean soldier, a Gentile who was a commander of an army. Naaman had contracted leprosy and was thus condemned to be forsaken by his community and to lose his leadership role as well. An Israelite servant girl informed Naaman about a possible solution in the person of Elisha. And as the story goes, Elisha gives a message to Naaman's servants to, re to relay back to him about what he must do to be healed. And frustrated at the healing from a distance method of Elisha and the muddy waters of the Jordan, he refused at first. But then under the urging of his servants, Naaman goes through with the act of dipping himself in the Jordan seven times. As Naaman is healed, he wants to pay Elisha for his services, but the prophet refused. However, Elisha's assistant Gehazi, overcome with greed, fabricated a story to Naaman to get some of the riches Naaman had offered Elisha. Elisha later confronts his servant about his wrongdoing, and his punishment is that both he and his descendants would suffer from leprosy, the same leprosy that Naaman had been healed of.
In chapter 6, Elisha performed a miracle of retrieving an axe head from the muddy water into which it had fallen. Then he goes on to playing a role in the ongoing conflict between Aram and Israel. The king of Aram soon discovers that it is Elisha who has been spying on them, and so the king dispatches a large force to take care of the problem. But Elisha had a great confidence because he saw a vision of the Lord's army who was ready to fight for him. And Elisha also prayed that the army of Aram was struck with blindness. God answered his prayer, and Elisha is happy to lead the blind Hermeans back home, but instead he leads them to the capital city of Samaria. However, the Arameans are treated kindly at the end of the day. However, this does not stop the king of Aram from coming back up against Israel later on. This time, it's a major invasion, and food becomes so scarce that cannibalism begins to take place. Of course, in all of this, King Joram of the north blames Elisha for the problems because he was the one who let the enemy go. Elisha puts the finger of blame on the king and predicts that not only the siege of the city will end soon, but also that the inflation prices, because of the famine supply was low and the demand was high, those inflation prices would drop considerably. All this came about by means of a rumor that the Hittite troops were marching against the Arameans, and this so terrified them that they fled their own land, leaving all their possessions behind. Moving on to chapter 8, we find that several years earlier, Elisha had instructed the woman of Shuman to leave her home for seven years because of the impending famine. When this woman returns, she finds her property appropriated by someone else. And using his influence with the king, Elisha saw to it that justice was done, and the woman regained everything that was hers. The next part of chapter 8, Elisha goes to Damascus, or Syria, to announce that Hazael was to succeed Ben-Hadad as king in Syria. This was something that Elijah had been commissioned to do. You can read that back in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 15. But Elisha now finishes that task. This reminds us that the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel, but over all the nations of the world. The nations will be blessed by God, but those same nations are also accountable to him. Now we go back to the kingdom in the south, where Jehoshaphat's reign comes to an end, and Jehoram, his son, takes over ruling in the south. Now listen carefully and use the chart I sent through email to help you better understand. King Jehoram in the south... 2 Kings chapter 8. This is Jehoshaphat's son. This is not the same king in 2 Kings chapter 3, Jehoram, Ahab's son. Some Bible translations use the same name in both accounts, which makes things confusing. The reason is that because in the Hebrew language, a variant of Joram is Jehoram. Think of it this way. Both the kingdom of the south and the kingdom of the north have a king named Jehoram, just like both kingdoms have a king named Ahaziah as well. Now, rather than following the godly example of his father, Jehoram in the south chooses to follow the examples of the evil kings of the north, to the extent that he marries one of Ahab and Jezebel's daughters. Now, this gets even more confusing now because Jehoram marries one of Ahab's daughters. He becomes the brother-in-law to Ahab's son, who is the Joram we just talked about in 2 Kings 3. Now, this is not as uncommon as you might think. Parents name their children the same names of the husband, junior, seniors, the third, etc. Anyway, back to the storyline. Jehoram chooses to pursue idolatry, and as a result, the kingdom in the south becomes weaker under his rule, and the king himself would die a painful death. You can learn about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 21. 
Ahaziah, Jehoram's son, takes over ruling in the south, but he is only on the throne for one year, and he continues in his father's ways. Now, moving down to chapter 9, God had told Elijah to anoint Jehu as king in Israel or king in the north. That was back in 1 Kings 19. And so now Elisha, his successor, is needed to finish the task. Jehu was an army commander, and Elisha sends a young prophet to inform him of his appointment to be the next king in the north. Elisha anointed Jehu privately and then publicly to his troops, who proclaimed him king immediately. Now, this new king, Jehu, is the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nishmi, another name that is mentioned twice in the text, but referring to two different people. Here it is Jehoshaphat, son of Nishmi, whereas the Jehoshaphat we've been talking a lot about is the good king of the south, and he was the son of Asa. Now, back to Jehu who goes immediately to take possession of the throne. He kills Joram, son of Ahab, because of his wickedness, and lays his bloody body in the vineyard that Ahab had taken from Naboth. He then goes after Ahaziah, king in the south, because Ahaziah has connections with Jehoram, Joram, excuse me, that implicated him as well. Jehu killed Ahaziah, and still not finished, he locates Jezebel to go after her and to kill her, just as Elijah had prophesied. And Elijah had prophesied of her gruesome end, end, and it happens just as the Lord said it would. So now that Jezebel is taken care of, we move into chapter 10, where Jehu continues his reforms. He goes after the 70 sons of Ahab and exterminates them as well, and he eradicates the worship of Baal, the cult that Ahab and Jezebel had officially established as Israel's religion. Now, God blessed Jehu for eliminating the line of Ahab and Baalism. However, Jehu did not go far enough in his reforms as he allowed the cult of Jeroboam to continue. This was the worship of the golden calves at Dan and Bethel that Jeroboam had originally set up. As a result, God cut his line off eventually, and Israel, or the the northern kingdoms, lost much of the Transjordan area to Haziel, king of Aram. Now in chapter 11, we move back to talking about kingdom in the south. King Ahaziah had died, killed by Jehu, and there was left no one to reign in his stead except an infant son named Joash. So Athaliah, which was Ahaziah's mother, declares herself as queen a position that she eventually secures by slaughtering all others who had claimed to the throne. This, of course, means members of her own family. Remember, Athaliah is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and for six years she ruled in the south. All the while, Joash had been secluded by Jehoiada the priest, waiting for the time to come forward and announce the true ruler. When Joash was seven years old, he was installed as the rightful king, and Athaliah met the same fate that she had inflicted at the beginning of her rule. Now, moving on to chapter 12, Joash now begins to rule in the south, with Jehoiada the priest giving him guidance. Joash was most notable for repairing and renewing the temple, which had fallen into ruin. He asked the people for help in this endeavor, and they responded, giving him whatever was needed. Unfortunately, most of the funds that came in went to an unworthy cause, the buying off of Hazel, king of Aram, who had laid siege to Jerusalem and was threatening to capture it and destroy it. Joash is killed by his servants who made up a conspiracy against him. It could also be argued that maybe uh, the paying off of Haziel was a sign of weakness on the part of Joash, and that's why he was killed. Nonetheless, he ruled for 40 years, and then his son Amaziah took the throne. 
So we move into chapter 13, and it goes back to the kingdom in the north. Jehu had reigned in the north for 28 years, and now Jehoaz, his son, was king. Jehoaz, like his father, embraced the heresy of the golden calves and experienced God's punishment by means of foreign oppressors. He ruled for 17 years, and then he was followed by his son, Jehoash. Jehoash is also spelled Joash in chapter 13, but this is not the same king from the south. He has already died. Again, another double name here. Jehoash, uh, consistent with the pattern of of the house of Jehu, was evil despite the good influence of the prophet Elisha. On his deathbed, Elisha challenged the king to trust God for victory over the Arameans, but Jehoash doesn't follow. After Elisha dies, Israel suffers invasions from their enemies. Three times Jehoash repelled his enemies, as Elijah had predicted, but in the final analysis, he failed to gain victory that could have been his. Elisha's ministry, we're told, lasted for 56 years, and when he died, he was buried by his friends. And there's a very interesting verse that you might not know about. It's in chapter 13, and it's verse 21. As Elisha was buried, another man, it seems, was thrown into his grave. And when this man's dead body touched Elisha's corpse, that dead man was revived and stood on his feet. God's power continued to work through Elisha, even though he was dead. Now into chapter 14, the Arameans were not the only ones harassing Jehoash, but also king in the south, Amaziah was. He was somewhat derelict and failing to remove all the idolatry from the kingdom. He was very military ambitious as seen in his defeat of Edom and his challenge to Joash of the north to confront him in battle. His ambition, however, led to his downfall. As it goes out to confront Jehoash in battle, Amaziah is unprepared, or underprepared, we should say, and he is captured by Jehoash of the north. Jehoash broke a wall section of Jerusalem and sacked both the temple and the royal place, taking the treasures back to Samaria. He dies shortly after, ruling the north for a total of 16 years. In the second half of chapter 14, Jehoash, his son, Jeroboam II, takes the throne and rules in the north. Now, I didn't include this info earlier because I didn't want to add to your already confused mind, but Jeroboam II had already been ruling with his father, Jehoash, for 12 years before his father died. The term for ruling together is called co-regent. So this means that Jehoash and Jeroboam II were co-regents for 12 years. This, happened a f- this happens a few times in the pages of Scripture. One of the most notable examples is in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, where Belshazzar is reigning together with his father, Nabonidus, for a period of time. This is why if you read Daniel 5 closely, and Daniel is offered position as the third ruler in the kingdom for interpreting the handwriting on the wall, you understand that third position is the best that Belshazzar can offer because he and his father, Nabonidus, are ruling together. Anyway, we'll have time to talk about Daniel later, but I just wanted to give you another example. Jeroboam II carries on the religious syncretism of his namesake, although he did prove to be a powerful deliverer of Israel and regaining territories that had been lost to Israel since the time of Solomon. He extended the northern kingdom's influence over her neighbors more than any other king of the north. The prophet Jonah had also prophesied Israel's great expansion. Yes, that's the same Jonah that wrote the book of Jonah, chapter 14, verse 25 of 2 Kings. Although Jeroboam had a long and politically impressive career, the spiritual the spiritual conditions were still bad, and books like Hosea and Amos throw light on the spiritual state at this time. This brings us to chapter 15 to King Azariah in the south. 
a new king. His name is also called Uzziah. He had a long 52-year reign, longer than any other king in both kingdoms. The first 23 years of his reign was a co-regency with his father, Amaziah. That's right, Amaziah and Azariah. (laughs) So Azariah uh, was one of the South's most popular, effective, influential kings. Um, He expanded territories, fortified cities, reorganized the army. Unfortunately, he became prideful, and in disobedience to the Mosaic law, he performed functions that God had restricted to the priest only. Second Chronicles tells us that. And as a result, God punished him with leprosy. And notice closely that the text says that he lived out his life in a separate house while his son Jotham ruled over the people. And this is a perfect example of a co-regency right there in the Bible text. Now, chapter, we flip back to the kings of the north. Zechariah, not the prophet, is the son of Jeroboam II, and he begins his reign. Zechariah only reigned for a short sixth month before his successor, Shalom, assassinated him. The fact that the people made Shalom king after he killed Zechariah suggests that Zechariah was not a popular guy. But Shalom's reign was even shorter than Zechariah's, only one month long. Menahem, Jeroboam II's commander of the army regarded Shalom as a usurper to the throne, and so he kills him and in his place takes the throne. Menahem reigned, his reign lasted for 10 years, and he was known for his brutality. And because of his idolatrous ways, God sends judgment his way in the form of Assyria, the superpower that was looming on the horizon. This will be the first of many campaigns from Assyria, but on this occasion, Samaria, the capital city in the north, was spared destruction as Menahem paid a heavy tribute to the king of Assyria not to bother them. Now, after Menahem dies, Pekiah, his son, ruled in the north for two years. His rule ended with Pekah, one of his military officers who assassinated him. And part of the reason for the assassination seems to be a differing opinion about foreign policy. During Pekah's reign, the Assyrians captured many towns and cities in the upper Galilee regions, but Pekah was assassinated through means of a conspiracy contrived by Hosea. Hosea, excuse me. Hosea would take the throne in the north. And the last part of chapter 15 flips back to the south. Jotham, who we mentioned before, was already ruling because his father, Uzziah, had contracted leprosy. So now he takes sole leadership and rules for 16 years. He was viewed favorably, favorably, but again was tolerant of the people's desire to continue in idolatry. Moving on to chapter 16, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, begins to rule. His wickedness is compared to the wickedness of the kings in the north. He even went as far as child sacrifices, chapter 16, verse 3. So he takes a trip to visit the Assyrian king located in Damascus, and upon his visit, he is so impressed with the Assyrian king's great pagan altar that he orders one just like it to be built in Jerusalem. He then offers a sacrifice on it rather than on the bronze altar of the temple, the one that was authorized by God. In addition, he made other alterations to the temple, desecrating it even more. The kingdom of the south is in desperate need of reform, and King Hezekiah would be the one to do this, and we'll learn about him next week. Now, lastly, chapter 17 of 2 Kings. The last of the northern kings is Hosea, who reigns for a total of nine years. Hosea withholds tribute payment to Assyria and thus incurs the wrath of Shalmaneser, who was the Assyrian king. And even though Hosea also sought the help of the pharaoh in Egypt against Assyria, Samaria, the capital city in the north, falls to Assyria after a three-year siege. The northern kingdom then suffers massive destruction and the deportation from which it never has recovered to this day. 
The ten tribes of the north are assimilated into Assyria. Now, furthermore, in the New Testament, just to make some connections for you, the Samaritans, the ones that the Jews did not like, are actually the the descendants of this assimilation of the northern tribes into Assyria. So these Samaritans that you read about in the Gospels are actually descendants from this dispersal and assimilation of the northern tribes into Assyria that took place here in 2 Kings chapter 17. All right. The northern kingdom is officially assimilated into the nation of Assyria. So next week, we continue the narrative as the southern kingdom is left. Now, that was a lot of information for today, I know. A lot of storyline to follow. So if you have any questions, send them to BibleReading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.